actually supposed to apply. Somehow it's actually supposed to be relevant. And the problem is that for some people and for some of us, it's just become irrelevant that Jesus was born thousands of years ago. But today I hope we can make this a little bit more relevant. And I hope that Jesus would be more and more a part of, the birth of Jesus would be more and more a part of Christmas celebration, if it isn't already, um, but also that it would be more and more uh, a part of your everyday life. Because it should matter. And so today we're going to talk about why that matters. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. If you're, uh, it'll be on the screen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there with me. Um, we're just going to read the Christmas narrative. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. I've gone over the history of Caesar Augustus before, and I, for some of you who haven't heard it, I want to go through some of that. Because the first, this starts out in, in those days, in the days of Caesar Augustus. This is a pretty important character in the biblical narrative. This is a pretty important character of all of the Roman world. In fact, life um, mattered. You know, if you lived in the Roman uh, Empire, this guy's life really mattered. It changed what you would do. You'd pay taxes based on this guy. You would worship based on this guy. This guy mattered to your everyday life. And he mattered in a really big way. Whether or not you knew peace or whether or not you knew war, Caesar Augustus had a hand in all of it. And most of you, some of you might know the story in the Roman Empire. Rome ruled everything. I mean, literally from Britain all the way over to India. They went down into Egypt. I mean, this is an empire that ruled everything. And in, in, in their mentality, not knowing about America and South America, in their, um, and obviously you didn't have Christopher Columbus yet, who didn't really discover America. Sorry if I ruined that for you guys. Um, but clearly, they thought, they believed that they ruled the world. He looked at himself as the king of the world. This guy sat on his throne and saw his empire, and it literally extended to the furthest reaches of the known planet. And so this guy really felt like he was the king of the world. This was Caesar Augustus, but how did he get there? Caesar Augustus had um, a great uncle named Julius Caesar. Many of you have heard of Julius Caesar, right? Yes? Some of you have heard of Julius Caesar? Julius Caesar was fighting to make the Roman Empire great. But, and he adopted his nephew, Octavian, to be his son. 
And Octavian followed him around everywhere. Octavian would become Caesar Augustus, the great ruler of the, the entire known world. And he followed his uncle around all over the place, and he learned how to govern. He learned um, how to be great. He learned how to win military battles. He, he learned how to be a gladiator. He learned all of these things from his uncle Julius Caesar. Well, one day, Julius Caesar was, in some of you know the conspiracy theory, beware the Ides of March, Mark Antony and the, the Senate, they walked up and they stabbed him and they killed him. And Caesar Augustus, well, not Caesar Augustus yet, but Octavian wanted to avenge what he saw as his father's murder. And so he held these great games. And if you, any of you have seen the movie Gladiator, where they meet in the Colosseum and they have lions and they have gladiators battling each other, that, that's what they did. They had these great giant games. And one of the things that they did was some of the people who were um, in on the conspiracy to kill Julius Caesar were thrown in to the, the mix there. And some of them were killed. During that time, Caesar Augustus looked up and saw a comet, probably Halley's Comet, saw a comet going by and took this as a sign that his father, who had just died, now sits at the right hand of Jupiter, and now he is the son of a god. So now he went from Octavian, just a little kid, probably 19 or 20 at this point, not a kid, teenager at this point, 19 or 20. Now he went from Octavian, who was his nephew, who got adopted, to all of a sudden, the son of God. And it goes even deeper than that. A giant civil war was started. Oh, by the way, he saw a star and saw or a, a comet and assumed that he was um, a son of a god. The book of Matthew talks about a star, another star that happened around this, not around this time, but a little bit later. When Jesus was born, and the Magi said, there's a sign that the true Son of God has been born. It's a very interesting story how these all mash together. So like I said, Octavian's logic basically said he made himself the Son of the Divine. And for 13 years after that, starting in 31 BC, there was a massive civil war that plagued the entire nation. The civil war between Mark Antony and Cleopatra and their troops and between the Roman Empire. And they were literally doing battle in parts of Greece and battle for 13 years that pillaged the country of money, that pillaged the country of food, that killed people. I mean, it's like the civil war here, where in the civil war here, there wasn't anybody that wasn't affected. Everybody was affected by this thing. You know, you might know somebody who's gone off to be in Iraq, or you might know somebody who's um, gone off to be in Afghanistan. Or maybe even earlier on Vietnam, things like that. We'll just quadruple those numbers. Multiply them by 10. That's how many people were affected by the people that you knew. So it wasn't just, it was every man, woman, and child was affected by the Civil War. It was extremely bloody. Extremely bloody. There was almost no food. There was famine that came through the land. We, we cannot imagine how devastating this was to the empire. But one day... And uh, Caesar Augustus was closing in on Antony, and Antony did something what was considered noble back then, and he fell on his sword. He realized he was going to lose. He was up on a hilltop. He put his sword down and fell on it and killed himself, and thus ending the civil war that so plagued the Roman Empire. And as they ended this civil war, this young guy named Octavian Caesar was then granted a new title by the Roman Imperial Senate, Caesar Augustus. 
It's a big name. I mean, it comes off in the Bible. It's, it's actually huge. All other emperors of Rome were small compared to this guy. If you were to study the emperors, all the ones that came after him, Tiberius and, and Nero and some of these other guys, they were nothing compared to, the, to Augustus. Even Julius Caesar could not compare to his son, Augustus. But he was given this title, which literally meant, Augustus meant savior of the world. And they inaugurated a new empire at this time, and they called that empire the Salvation of Augustus. The biggest boast of Octavian was the peace of Rome. Now, there's a little bit of a different idea of what peace was, because if you lived in Israel um, or Palestine or in the outskirts, somewhere that wasn't in Rome, then you likely would be killed, or you likely would be subject to taxes, or you likely would have been hurt very badly. But to give you an idea of how devastating the peace of Rome was, because it really wasn't a peace. The peace was a fraud. The peace was only for the people who lived in the empire and were citizens of the empire. There was revolts everywhere. The Bible even talks about the revolts. If you look in in Acts chapter 5, there's this whole council where Peter is talking to this council of the Sanhedrin, and there's this guy named Gamiel, and he says, you know what, let's go back at all these different revolts and how they've all failed. They all tried to kick the Romans out, but they couldn't do it. If this is of God, in other words, Peter and Jesus and this whole thing, if this is of God, then they'll succeed, and they'll be fine. Um, Seifris was a scene of revolt about four miles from Nazareth. A Roman general named Verses on the spot crucified 2,000 people for a revolt. There was a Roman general named Cassius who enslaved 30,000 people because they they did not want to pay the taxes. We have records of the town of Emmaus where Jesus was walking to after his resurrection. And that town actually was almost completely destroyed by the Roman sword. I mean, we cannot understand how devastating this was to these people. And so now when Caesar Augustus issues a decree that everybody needs to go pay their taxes, this is kind of a big deal because you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't know if you're going to be killed. You don't know if they're going to take more money from you because you already had to pay 12.5% of your income just to Caesar. Just to Caesar. I mean, some of us would be like, man, I'd be glad if my my income tax was only 12.5%. That'd be amazing. But that was just the tribute to say, I live at the will of Caesar. Now, to pay the tribute, many Jews wouldn't pay that. Actually, there was a group called the Zealots that started, and they said, you know what, for us, we're just going to kill Romans. And that's what they did. They took daggers in their cloaks, and they, when a Roman walked up to them, they shanked them right there in the uh, kidney, and they, and they died within minutes. Because they didn't want to pay the tax because they saw paying the temple tax as tantamount to worshiping Caesar, and they would not do it. Now, I don't think killing people is, is good either, I mean, but apparently, you know, that's the move that they decided to make in their time. A little bit more of a brutal uh, time period. There's an inscription found on the wall, one of the most important inscriptions, dated back to 9 BC, so 9 to 12 years before the birth of Jesus. This inscription that was built on this giant building for Caesar Augustus, and it says this, and I'm condensing it because it's very long. The most divine Caesar, who we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder, Caesar picked it up. Caesar has put an end to the fighting and is savior. 
Having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of previous times. And the celebration of the birthday of Caesar has been the beginning of good news. This is the same Greek word that we use for gospel. Before there was a gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a gospel of Caesar Augustus. Before there was the good news of Jesus, there was the good news of Caesar. And for many people in the Roman world, they really believed this good news. They really did believe that he was God. So there's a lot of New Testament language found in this inscription. If you start reading Luke chapter 2 again, you'll see some of this language used as applied to Caesar Augustus. He was called the cosmic savior, heaven shining star, the God Augustus. You literally would have to worship him or be killed. You couldn't escape this. Communities even formed to worship Caesar. They called these communities ecclesias or ecclesias. Ecclesia is the Greek word that we derive from the term church. So they literally had church services worshiping Caesar. I mean, can you imagine the tone and the climate of this world? Because, and you might be wondering, why in the world is all this language that was around before Jesus was even around? Why is this applied to Caesar Augustus? Why did God choose to use this? Couldn't God have done something totally different and and used completely different words to, to talk about his son coming into this world? Yeah, he absolutely could have, sure. But I think one of the points of the Christmas story is actually to force us to choose. Who's it going to be? Who are we going to worship? What are we going to do with our lives? Where will our hearts go? If you look at all, all these things that Luke tells us during the reign of Caesar Augustus, there's a baby being born that's going to make all the difference. Luke is setting up this clash between two kings and two kingdoms. That's what this Christmas story is about. I love that Paul wrote in this in the book of Galatians, um, in his letter to the, the, the church um, in Galatia, in, in chapter, chapter 4, he says this, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law. Another translation of this says, At just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Can you imagine that this was probably the right time for God to send his son? Paul is even using some of the same language that was applied to Augustus because the point of the gospel story is to force you to choose which gospel is it going to be. Is it going to be the gospel that this world says is good or is it going to be the gospel of Jesus? Because the gospel of Jesus says that this peace over here that Augustus is proclaiming as a fraud. It says that this hope that they have in, in new programs or whatever it is, that's a fraud. It says all this other junk that's invented by Augustus is a fraud. The Caesars of this world is all a fraud. And that Jesus is really the true king. Let me read this again just so that you get it. And, and, and I want you to listen this time for, for words that were applied to Caesar, words that were applied to Jesus, and you just really begin to see the clash that this event brings up. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. The entire Roman world, which was almost the whole world. This is the first <clears throat> census that took place while Canarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. 
So Joseph went from a town of Nazareth in Galilee into Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David. Let me pause there for a second. Bethlehem was a nothing town. Probably the reason why Joseph was up in Galilee in the first place, which is uh, about a two-hour drive away, although they didn't have cars. It just took me two hours to drive there. Um, <laughs> two and a half, maybe, hour drive away or, or an eight-day walk. One of the reasons why he was probably up there is because Bethlehem really is a rest spot. It's a spot on a, on a line of roads where you stop, and their main industry was inns, was hotels. Little buildings that they offered, they rented their rooms out for the night. That was the main industry there. So probably even really there was only 30, maybe 50 residents of the town of Bethlehem at this time. Very, very small, insignificant town, other than the fact it was prophesied that that's where Jesus would be born, the Savior of the world. That's Bethlehem. Because he belonged to the house and line of David. Verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Messiah. That was even a term applied to Caesar. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest of heaven. And on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. Excuse me. So like I said, they traveled down, they paid the taxes, and the part of the census was to pay these taxes. But I want to keep going over some of the rest of the story here. One of the very interesting parts of this story in verse 8 says that there were shepherds living out nearby. And these shepherds were, were, were literally just around there at night watching over their flock. Now, this tells us something really interesting. Jesus could not have been born on December 25th. I'm really sorry that some of you might be thinking this is Jesus' actual birthday. But in order for shepherds to be out in the middle of the night or at nighttime, it would have had to bring in, be in the spring or the summer. It was probably not December 25th. I've been there in January. I could tell you it gets bitterly, bitterly cold. And they would have been in big trouble if they were out there on December 25th. But that's not the main point of this. There were shepherds out there, and the angels appeared to these shepherds and told them something incredible. Now, new scholarship on this, newer scholarship, says that these shepherds could have actually been somebody really important. Not just any run-of-the-mill shepherds, but they actually could have been a little bit more important than what we would normally think. Now, there's this, um, there's this idea that these shepherds might have been, and right near Bethlehem was uh, the temple grazing grounds. And why does this matter at all, that the temple grazing grounds happened? Because these sheep were set apart. That This could be. Now, don't take this for gospel, because the, the scholarship is still completely, a little bit unclear on this. But it could be that these were actually the temple grazing grounds, and that these shepherds were actually looking for the Passover lamb that would have been used that year. They could have been looking for the lamb that was completely unblemished. 
Now, if you know anything about the Passover, the lamb's got to be unblemished. The lamb's got to be pure. The, the lamb can't have any defects or markings on it. And, and the lamb has to be you know, treated just right because that lamb is going to take away the sins of the people. And that is what they were looking for. Lambs that could be used as Passover lambs. Now, it's not completely clear if this was the case, but, but um, new archaeology and scholars have said there's been, there was temple grazing grounds right there at Bethlehem. And so these angels were, came, and this angel came and talked to these shepherds, the shepherds who were looking for the true lamb, and said, the lamb of God has arrived. It's not just the Passover lamb anymore, but God has actually sent his son now, and they went to go worship him all the way down from the lowest of lows, because even if they were temple shepherds, they were still pretty low on the totem pole in Israel. All the way down from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, and the Gospel of Matthew tells us that magi, or kings from the east, came to worship Jesus. Jesus was worshipped in the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. And it's just quite amazing that the Gospel of John records that when Jesus was born, they said, behold, the Lamb of God. So as these shepherds were out looking for the perfect Lamb, God provided the perfect Lamb. And if we keep going, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. He will be, he will, uh, you will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest of heavens. And on earth, peace to men whom his favor rests. This is really interesting because this greeting was actually the same exact greeting. There would be shouted from the streets, there would be trumpets blaring, and if a, a dignitary, a Roman dignitary, only really Caesar Augustus got this greeting, if he walked through your streets, it'd be proclaimed beforehand over and over and over and over again until Caesar Augustus finally walked down the streets of that town. And look what's happening here. What's happening here is that Jesus is being proclaimed in the same exact greeting that Caesar Augustus would have gotten. Jesus gets that same exact uh, praise and, and greeting from these angels and the shepherds. <clears throat> Excuse me. So these are the words of the, the heavenly hosts are verbatim what Roman soldiers would sing out as Augustus would enter a town. Why did they do this? Because they lived in a town, in a setting, in a time, in a place where they wanted to say, the true Savior is here. This is a divine revolt. This is a divine act of revolution against the powers that were existing at this time. You see what's going on here is that Luke is saying there's two, two kings and they're destined to clash. And they'll ultimately clash when Jesus is standing in front of Pilate. And Pilate says, you know, I've got the power to kill you. And Jesus says, you have no power or authority other than what's been given to you by my Father. And so he basically is like, boom, I've got all the power here. And then he laid his life down. The Christmas story isn't necessarily the soft, tender, silent, holy night that we make it. It was fought with death and brutality. But this is a revolution. People were getting killed for following this guy who proclaimed to be Savior. People were getting killed for following this baby that was born that was the Savior. You have to ask yourself the question, in light of what happened here, in light of the first Christmas, 
what kind of Christian should I be? What kind of person should I be? I pray with my kids every night, and, and we prayed this, this prayer, and, we, and now Lucy says it, and she's so stinking cute when she says it. But when we, I pray for them every night, and I put my hand on their head, and I say, Dear Jesus, please help make Lucy to be, or Emma to be, the kind of person that make other people happy that you made this world and put Lucy in it, or Emma in it. What kind of Christians are we going to be? Now, I want my kids to be good kids. I want them to be utterly captivated by Jesus. I want them to be good people. But I want more for them, too. You know, I want them to understand that what the church is part of is this revolutionary body that's actually helping in part of God's plan to redeem the entire world. That we're not just here to come and hear a nice sermon or, or to sing good music or, or to give an offering because it makes you feel good or anything like that. But we're actually part of God's mission on this world, in this world. That you make a difference. That we could all make a difference because we're part of God's mission in this world. That's what I want my kids understanding and knowing. That they're on mission with God. Because when the world says, when the Caesars of this world say, you know, you need to crush people that are mean to you, how does the church respond to that? We need to love them. We need to do what the Sermon on the Mount says. We need to do what Jesus says. We need to love them back. When the world says revenge is the way to go, we respond by asking the question that that Paul asked in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he, he said, why not rather be wronged? Why not just take a beating? Why not rather be wronged? I'm not saying that you, know, you should let people defraud you of money or anything like that, but Paul was basically in the context, there was a dispute between two believers, and he basically said, why not just let yourself be wronged and instead of having a bad witness with the church? Where the world says money is the path to power and success, we say, no, it is service and humility that is the path to greatness in God's kingdom. Service and humility. Where the world says, if you utter something I disagree with, that's called hate. Well, we're called to welcome those whom we disagree with as our neighbors and treat them in a way that we'd like to be treated. That's what we're called to. What could be more powerful than a group of peasants saying that this little baby is is God? Is bigger than Augustus. This little baby that was born, there wasn't even room, there was not even a bed, but he was born in, in this manger. What could be more powerful than these little peasants saying that, no, this one's actually God. That Caesar's peace is a fraud. That he is not the Savior. That he is not heaven's shining star. That he is not the greatest. What could be more powerful than that? And if you think about it, what kind of people do you want to raise? What kind of kids do you want to raise in this world? I mean, it'd be great to raise people that didn't cuss, that sang good songs, that, that, that was nice to everybody, that left good tips, um, that, you know, was just nice people. Do we want to raise nice people? Or do we want to raise people who are revolutionaries for the kingdom of God? Do we want to raise kids? I want to raise kids believing that the revolution is here and now. That following Jesus is actually subversive to the structures of evil in the world. Because there are structures of evil in this world. And that following Jesus actually undermines those and subverts those. 
that actually loving people can make a change and a difference in the planet. You guys have all heard the stories, the, the stories that are probably told on the internet. and They used to be chain mail, then they were chain emails, and now they're just on Facebook everywhere. Um, and they're the same stories, and they go round and round and round and round and round. People are like, oh, have you heard this one? You're like, yeah, I heard it 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes says that. But you hear these stories about somebody being nice to somebody, them not committing suicide. I mean, that stuff actually happens. That kind of thing actually happens. So I want my kids being nice to the people that are not in in this world. I want my kids radically loving others and being radically inclusive and helping them to change. When Jesus said that he would never leave us or forsake us, I, I think the question is, what would change in your life if you actually started believing that? Now, I'm not saying that none of you believe that, because I'm sure some of you do believe that. But the question is, if that actually became common practice, well, hey, J- Jesus will never leave me or forsake me, so I'm going to go do this. Or I am going to take this challenge, because Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. What would change in your life? This idea of revolution is all throughout the Christmas story. So we kind of need to do something about this. And I think the question is, what? You know, ever increasingly, we live in a society that says, if you don't agree with me, then you hate me. Have you been, has anybody else noticed this? I've talked about this a few times. If you don't agree with me, you hate me. In fact, if you say something sinful, then that's hate. Well, <laughs> it's just not the case. Never so much have I seen a society that actually values conformity and groupthink as much as our society is valuing it at the moment. And you think of it, this Duck Dynasty thing kind of shows it off. You guys have heard of this Duck Dynasty? I just had to talk about it. The Duck Dynasty thing kind of shows it off. And, I, and I'm not, say, I'm not going like, to use this platform to bash on anybody or anything like that. Because what, what was the network again? Is it A&E? Okay, they have the right to, to hire and fire whoever they want. Just like as a church, we've got the right to do that. We're not going to hire non-Christians. We're going to hire Christians. We're going to hire people that follow the Bible. I mean, that's the reality. So... So fine, do, do what you want, Annie, that's, that's fine. But my point is, this controversy actually highlights and shows the, the road that we've been going down as a society. Us and them. Us and them. There's the, this agenda in their camp, and there's our agenda in our camp. And I think that something needs to be broken down because if we keep going down the road of us and them, us and them, us and them, then more of these battles will happen and we'll reach further polarization and we'll never come together in, in an act of repentance and restoration in relationships, which I believe that Jesus wants. Now, the Duck Dynasty thing just totally highlights that. And I think the family acted tremendously great if you read their statement online. They just acted great in all of this. And I, I think they had such a good... Christian response. But how do we engage people that rapidly become our enemies? How do we do that? With love? I mean, I've, I've made a few enemies online. I, I blog and I write things, and sometimes I get people that, that get upset at me for them. And I don't know these people. I've never met them before. But as soon as I say, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee and talk this over, it's like, no, I don't want to talk. No, you're fine. It's okay. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> Because if you know me, I'm not afraid of confrontation. I actually don't mind confrontation at all. Um, But my point is, we're moving in a society that is rapidly polarizing. 
And when you think about the agenda of Jesus and what did Jesus come to do, he came for the people in the middle. He came for the people that, that were desolate, the people who were on the outside, the people who were looked at society by society and said, those people are sinful, we don't want any part of them. Read through the Gospels. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus kept saying things like, there's more room at the table. Jesus kept saying things like, go out and bring these people to me. He gave dignity to women, gave dignity to children, gave dignity to the homeless and the helpless and the hurting and the sick and the dying. Jesus gave dignity to them. We're moving towards rapid polarization. Two ends of the spectrum. And we can't work out our differences. So what do we do as a church? I mean, maybe you're, you're on one end of the spectrum. I mean, uh, honestly, there's, there's political beliefs, ideologies, there's, there's religious beliefs and stuff that will put you on one end of the spectrum. That's fine. That's okay. But how do we tangibly love those who are on the other end of the spectrum? Because I think that's where our society is going. And I think the Duck Dynasty thing just simply highlights that. So like I said, it seems to me like there's structures and powers in this world that love to divide and conquer. <laughs> there's giant companies and there's organizations that love to say, let's separate these people. Make them vote different ways. Make them do different things. Make them do all this stuff. But how do we come across the aisle and just say, I love you? I want to understand you. Not only that, I, I want to help you get to know the person that I know intimately, and that's Jesus. Jesus never went over and changed behavior. Jesus never walked up to people and was like, hey, you know what, before you and I get to talking, you're going to need to stop your whole prostitution thing. You know, Jesus never did that. He engaged them in the heart. He engaged them where they were in life. He engaged them, and he loved them. And as a result, they changed. Unfortunately, the polarization of our world one end is shouting, change your behavior, and the other end is shouting, stop hating us. You know, they perceive that as hate, which is not hate. It's just, it's ridiculous to think that. It's, it's really bad reasoning, actually. Um, uh, but it, in other words, you've got the powers that be in this world. And how is the church to become in the middle and love people right where they're at? Whether it's the homosexual community, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, whether it's the big companies or the little companies, how do we love people tangibly? Whether it's the TV networks or whoever else, we're going to have these struggles wherever we go. How do we love them tangibly? How do we do that and not condone a certain behavior? But I think that's the biggest question here is, Jesus came with this revolution. And it doesn't mean anything to us unless we take it up and we say, okay, we're going to be revolutionaries with you, Jesus. I don't know what that means yet, but we're going to do it. We're going to go with you. How do we tangibly act and live? The Christmas story is all about this giant rebellion. And as this world basically tells us how to act and how to live and, and basically says, you need to be a certain way, we are crying out that there is only one Savior. We are not going to bow down to the Caesars of this world, to the Caesar of revenge, to the Caesar of whatever else. The world doesn't need more Caesars. The world needs more revolutionaries. And I think the biggest thing that we need to do here today is decide how will we be revolutionaries together. John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus is coming. John the Baptist went out and he prepared the way. 
And as he's preparing the way, he's saying the Savior is going to come. Some really smart guy, a a tax collector, was like, hey, you know, if the Savior is going to come into this world, what should I do? And you know what he responded? If you have two cloaks, give one away. Share with people. Love people. um, Restore relationship with people. That's what he responded. I think that as people get to know each other, they they cannot hate each other as they get to know each other more and more and more, and as they learn to love each other more and more and more. So maybe there's people with completely different ideologies than us and completely different ways of life than us, but we still need to love them. Because as we go down that road and we come closer and closer and closer, we bring them closer and closer to Jesus. Because as it is, with the increasing polarization of our culture, we're simply pushing them away more and more and more more. How do we bring people in, bring people closer so that we can share the love of God with them? There's been a number of people that have been revolutionary. Um, This little old lady named Teresa went to a little place called Calcutta. And she said, I will not bow down to the Caesar of comfort and luxury. And she basically lived in poverty the rest of her life and served the dying. And helped people die. Wow. How will you live it out? Maybe you're not going to sell everything and move to Calcutta. But how will you live it out? How will you live out the fact that the seizures of this world have no power over us, but we act in the power of Jesus? How will you live that out? When someone gets really mad and and cuts you off, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to yell and scream and allow them to have that power over you? Or are you going to treat them with love and dignity and respect even though they've wronged you? What are you going to do? What kind of revolutionary will you be? Maybe you're here in this world and you're here and you're hearing this all for the first time and there's this clear distinction between following Jesus and, and following the Caesars of this world. And I just want to invite you to join the revolution. Just simply say, Jesus, I'm in. I don't even know what that looks like, but, but I'll follow you. I'm in. I, I'm done with the powers that be of this world, and I want to follow you because I know that what you do leads to, to restoration. I know what you do leads to reconciliation. I know what you do leads to true life. I don't even know what that is, but I want to follow you. You're here today, and that's simply you. And I want to invite you to keep the revolution of Christmas alive. Maybe it's by giving to somebody this Christmas, or maybe it's by loving somebody, or maybe there's people in your family that you're going to gather with that you can't stand, and you need to love them. And you need to ask for forgiveness. And you need to say, yeah, you did this to me, but I've been harboring this hate in my heart for so long over you, and I, I need to let that go. Would you forgive me? Maybe it's that. In one little act, you could change something entirely. You could change somebody's world. So I want to invite you this Christmas into that. So today we're going to close and we're going to pray and we're going to just simply remember that Jesus invites us into his revolution, into his life that changes lives and worlds. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reminded that when you sent your son, the entirety of human history changed. God, you cannot read a history book without seeing your mark. We cannot even begin to fathom history without talking about the church. God, you've had an double mark on history. And God, we live in a culture, and you know this, that so we just continually going, we're continually going opposites from each other. We're continually beating each other up. 
God, would you give us ideas to bridge the gap? Father, would you help us walk this revolutionary road that you walked down? God, would you help us to be this, the revolution of Christmas? And God, to love people that don't love us. God, to simply love people with your agape love that's so powerful that just simply says, I love you and I accept you. God, would you help us wrap our arms around people? God, would you help us to restore relationships this Christmas? Would you help us to be on mission with you? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.